All right, welcome to episode 52. Um, not to be confused as our year anniversary, uh, we doubled down two weeks on some lives, so we still got two more for a year, but it's coming up fast. I uh, want to thank all of you guys that have been hanging in tight throughout the year, and this week we should have what we said before but never pans out a quick episode for you guys. We're going to be diving into how we select our holdbacks, the purpose of even having holdbacks, and um, Nathan and I haven't really had the opportunity to uh, hold back a lot of animals because we, we've relatively produced not a lot of clutches, um, and so... For any of you that are more experienced, doesn't matter if it's retics. It could be geckos, it could be tree monitors, it can be ball pythons. If you're listening to this, go ahead, drop the comments on how you guys select your holdbacks because we want to provide as much information as we can, and you guys definitely have more information than us on this topic. You'd mentioned tree monitors, and yeah, if you're a tree monitor breeder, I, I definitely right. want to hear. <laughs> what are you looking for? Because I want to get into that world. Right. Let me so, see how I can select someone's holdback. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just finding CBB is enough there. Right. Uh, so, Lucas, I, I guess I want to jump off with what's just a broad definition and uh, meaning of a holdback to you. Yeah, so a holdback animal is literally an animal that you are keeping for yourself. You're being selfish. You're saying, I'm not selling this animal. I am going to keep it. And I guess there's different reasons why you would want to keep it, but you know, you could keep it because you just want, you produce a cool looking animal and want a pet or for most breeders, when you are holding animals back, it's because you plan to further the project, um, with the animal that you produce. So if I had a catch all definition, it's that. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like it's being a little redundant after our last episode with Shane, we, we talked in nauseam with uh holdbacks with right you know his breeding program so right why you already mentioned being selfish but why else would you want to hold back an animal um yeah so you know when i when i say like being selfish you know i mean that kind of in a, a light-hearted light-spirited way in the sense of like you produce an animal that looks so good that you want to keep it in your breeding project, right? So you're going to hold an animal back because there's something about that animal that you want to raise up and improve your line of whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's a morph or locality. Um, that That's kind of like one reason why you would want to hold it back. Um, and to be honest, there's been times where I have held animals back in my first clutch that was based off of uh, their disposition. Uh, fortunately, my first clutch ever that uh, wild caught Calatoa pairing produced just nice animals. Generally, even the people that have gotten them have said how uh, well behaved they are. But um, there was one animal in particular that uh, like never struck out food response, but was a great eater, would always come out curiously. And that was my male. Uh, I, I named him Junior because he looked like the dad. Um, I kept it back just because of that. It was kind of like a, a sentimental thing. And then I also kept back the first animal I ever produced ever from the year before. And that was like, no one's ever going to take away this, you know, first experience from me. So yeah, uh, whenever I hear of an animal named junior, I think of uh, Brian Cusco's retic. Yep. 
Um, do you have anything else to add as far as like why I mean, you would hold yeah, back I mean, as far as disposition wise goes, I mean, my first pairing, I, I used my sweetest animal, uh, with kind of a flighty male and I'd say the animals are somewhere in the middle. Like they have a great food response. They're very confident, but once you get them out, they're a joy to handle. So, right. You know, yeah. I, I think that disposition goes a long way and then. With this last pairing, I mean, I, I used a much calmer male, the same female, and I haven't had more than one animal get a little bit, you know, uh, defensive with me and striking, but yeah. I haven't been bit by any of the hatchlings this year. Oh, that's, dude, that, that's <laughs> which is weird. That's nice. So like, I'll say like any of the Superdorf stuff, localities that I've produced, um, you know, none of them were, were defensive in you know, didn't get bit by any of them. But this first time I ever produced mainlands, um, it's crazy because the female tiger, uh, endocarmel was a sweetheart. Like she is the definition of a gentle giant. And then my ocelot, he's not a giant. He's not big. He's young. He's only a year and a half old. Same thing, complete sweetheart. But yet every tiger from this clutch, when I try to get them out, they just, they open up their mouth wide open in this defensive posture. And they're, <laughs> they're a bunch of little, uh, fun babies to work with, but, um, they're getting better with handling. All right. And then I think the last, just like intro part is how, how do we balance our desire to, you know, just hold everything back versus, you know, re retaining a, a responsible breeding program. Yeah, so I think we're going to get into detail about this a little bit later, but I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that as far as like the intro, because as you guys are listening to this, we're going to provide you some insight and some information that um, a lot of, I don't know, I think is overlooked in the sense of like, you know, it's real easy to keep back animals and to have a bunch of hatchlings, right? But you also have to remember if you're holding them back for breeding projects, eventually they're going to be, you know, sexually mature four or five-year-old animals with size that piss a gallon that shit the size of your forearm. Um, so just remember that more holdbacks that you have, uh, you know, it, it's going to take up space. So we'll, we'll jump into all that later when we get there. But um, before we go any further, Nathan, I want to just throw in a plug and just remind people of our thousand subscriber giveaway. So if you guys like what you're listening to so far, if this is useful for you, hit the like button. And again, like I mentioned before, provide feedback on what you guys do. Um, if you're not subscribed and you're listening for the first time, welcome. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Reach out to us. We're happy to help any way that we can. That's how you get entered into the the contest anyway. So, I mean, yeah. please make sure that you're subscribed. Tell your friends, tell your family, maybe anyone that you know that likes reptiles. You know, yeah. get them into this. Ooh. So. That, that's actually, so for those of you that aren't aware, when we hit 1K subs, we are going to be giving away, um, you know, over, was it 300, over $300 yeah. worth of VivTech products. They're one of our sponsors um, and they are, um, they're awesome with being able to hook us up with some amazing husbandry equipment for you guys. It's uh, truly like the next generation of husbandry supplies. Like if you think right. of big box stores and what we've been able to get out of there, like they're looking to really push that beyond what, you know, we've seen from the nineties to now. So 
you know, they're doing big things and we love their products. So I think you guys will too. So whoever gets this package is going to be super lucky, but yeah. I mean, it has a camera, it has some of their sensors, it has their light, their fixture. Their it, it's, it's everything to get you set up right. with experiencing VivTech the right way. So back to what you were saying, Nathan, when you, if you guys have a spouse or a family member, right. And you want to just ask them to subscribe and they don't listen that's more subs for you that you get to keep it increases your chances of winning. Whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stuart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows on Morph Market and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stuart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry, but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with Retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stuartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cute Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animals' comfort and well-being. Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animals' caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code retic lounge 23 today for 15 percent off looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics look no further than heli guy serpents our sponsor chris sexton is coming in hot with an amazing 3d printer creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets Enrich your retics environment with their high quality products use our promo code trl10 
for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heliguy Serpents, the premier source for 3D printed caging accessories. Again, that's www.heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories. Uh, let's let's jump back into uh, selecting holdbacks. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of just keeping a responsible breeding program, I mean, for me, it's, you know, overcoming that desire of wanting to hold everything back and, you know, trying to hold the right things back, which we'll obviously get into later. But, um, you know, it comes down to cage space and what you're able to manage. Of, of course, I'd love to keep back all 17 of the hatchlings that I produce this year, but it's just not feasible come two, three years down the line when you said they're, you know, their poops get bigger and their, their urine <laughs> increases right. and they pee a lot. So, you know, yeah. their and their cage space increases a lot very quickly. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where, you know, you hear, I, I've had several different mentors when I was talking about breeding plans and projects that I wanted to work on that they would uh, say like, Hey, you know, if you're going to do that, just plan to hold back the whole clutch. And back then I was like, Oh yeah, duh. Right. You don't want anyone to beat you to the punch, but like, now that my garage is getting full and I'm just now getting into these projects, I'm like, I can't hold back the whole clutch. Like <laughs> there's, there's no way. So, um, I guess as I'm the further that I'm getting into breeding, I'm also realizing that, uh, for me, as far as holdbacks go, um, I'm always going to now decide on a reasonable number, even if it's small, even for a big project. And if someone, beats me to that punch uh it's just part of the game and it's not gonna be the end of the world for me i'd rather that happen than me keep back 20 animals and house them in cb70s until they're three or four years old um just not what i'm i'm trying to do anymore yeah i I mean for me i think my focus ultimately has always been just produce the animal that I want to keep the most. Right. And, you know, that doesn't mean holding back all the animals. It means holding back my favorite of the animals to get me closer to my goal. And luckily I've been able to keep focus in that regard. And I, I, I I guess I don't give myself enough credit for it, but you know, Dude, are I, you I, kidding me? You've had almost the same number of retakes for the entire like four years that I've known you. Uh, yeah. I mean, six is kind of my sweet spot. I, I think it's going to jump up to eight or nine here just with, you know, how the season went. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I kind of want to jump into, you know, traits and morphs. So when we get to deciding our holdbacks, whether you're working with localities or working with morphs, we're always looking for something visually that, you know, we're right. trying to breed for, at least if you're doing your breedings properly, you're doing it ethically and doing it for a purpose. So right. um, what considerations do you have when you're looking at some of those desired traits and maybe talk some about some of your product? Wow projects that you've worked on this year my products yeah um (laughs) i mean so 
Yes, I mean, I'm selling I, them. I don't like to say it that way. That's <laughs> right? for sure. It, it's the same people that don't like the word collection. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to me holding back animals, the type of traits and things that I, so first and foremost, like if I'm working on recessive projects and I have a few of those going on this year, I'm thinking like three generations out. I'm thinking of like, what is it that I am ultimately trying to achieve down the road? Especially if you guys are getting into the Superdorf game and you guys are wanting to introduce recessives that aren't common, anthrax, endocarmal, ghost, ocelot, hypo, those kind of things, you have to think ahead of like where you are trying to go. So for me, when it comes to selecting holdbacks for those type of projects, I am looking for the animals that express, uh, I'll give an example, right? I'm going to throw my ocelot in with my coyote. There's an example overseas of a Kaiwadi ocelot that doesn't look that great, thin blacks, um, not very silver. So for me, what I'm going to be looking for in that pairing, and I'm doing that pairing because, uh, you know, my male ocelot has very thick blacks, very high silver versus the one that was used overseas. The animals that I'm going to be holding back for that project are going to be the offsprings that have the thickest blacks, the most silver on the sides, and that's what I want that project to go towards, right? Because the mainland ocelots in the U.S. look phenomenal. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make the Superdorf version of those. So I'm going to be selecting thickest blacks, right? Um, when it comes to locality stuff, I always try to choose the funkiest type of pattern. Um, I, I There's usually in the clutches that I produce with localities, some, you know, the Kalatoas and the Kaiwadis and then the, the Philippine that I had, um, I, I really look out for the standout animal with a different type of look. Um, I think that goes with morphs too, though. I mean, yeah, yeah. either the funkiest version of that morph, like something you don't see very often in, mm-hmm. say, I mean, let's just say my clutch with the phantom tiger stuff, the funkiest phantom or the fan- funkiest tiger or the funkiest purple, whatever. Right. Um, I mean, it, it, it goes that way and you can even kind of change that to just the cleanest. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think it goes both ways. Um, you know, so I try to look for something that's different. The reason why is because if I'm breeding two locality, if I'm breeding locality pairings, I know that the locality is, is legit. So I'm not concerned about people questioning that because I'll be able to provide the information they need. But, um, if there is something that looks very different or unique or that doesn't show the traits of what that locality typically looks like, in my mind, I'm thinking if I can selectively breed those animals to look more like that, I'll have that locality that other people have, but it'll look a lot different than what everyone else is producing with locality, which makes your animals kind of stand out more. Uh, another example with locality stuff that I do is so Everyone knows the Doc Murdoch line, Kaiwadis, and they have that that chain-like pattern on the back with thicker blacks, the orange and the reds. Um, my Kaiwadi uh, has kind of a different phenotypic expression and has a high uh, rosette, those white circles on the side. It has a very high number of those. And so the animals I held back this year are ones that continued to have that high number because I, if I'm going to continue selectively breeding Kaiwadis, that's kind of what I want to, the look I want to go for. That's smart. That reminds me of uh, one of the holdbacks that I uh, 
wish I still had. And it was a golden child that had a bunch of little Dude, that, rosettes yeah. on the side. The one that Phil has? Yeah, the one that Phil has. <laughs> if Luckily, you go to I'll NARBC, to... you'll be able to see it. Oh, well, yeah, we're, we're going to make that happen. It's not an if, it's it's how. Good. Um, yeah, so expect a, a live TRL from NARBC Arlington. Lucas and I finally getting together in person just a little bit after a year of doing this thing get to sit down with some of you guys so that that should be pretty fun i'm gonna uh, try not to hug you so hard i hurt your back <laughs> yeah I, I it's weird to think that this will actually be our first time meeting in person just because we've talked so much so much face to face so much yeah, right it's, it's a little bit weird because I've, I've already been in that area but uh moving on to kind of our next topic here it oh, goes hold on in, hold, oh, hold on i want oh. to like how did you use like i want to hear specifics in terms of what you did with your holdbacks this season with your awesome um you know snow clutch um what what was it this deciding factor for you that's like a loaded what, question like what trait <laughs> like what what trait what what did you look for in terms of so what I, you were wanting i mean to obviously the the visual snows being held back and proven out what? Um, Explain to our listeners that might not know why that's obvious. Why the snow is obvious or what? Yeah, why you selected the snows. So there was two visual snows in the clutch. Unfortunately, one of them uh, kinked out in the egg and didn't make it uh, past pipping. So that one is preserved, but uh, one did make it very healthy. It's established eating great temperament. It's a female. Um, I believe it's a phantom tiger just based off the pattern. Uh, it's not the best representation of phantom tiger in my opinion. Uh, but with but the rosettes, no, yeah, with the, I have a purple tiger and I have a purple phantom. Um, and just with how the rosettes are striped out, uh, how the top is, more aberrant and patternless. Uh, I believe it is a phantom tiger snow. So that one will be sticking around. I mean, that's just my first snow produced and that's one of my big goals in my breeding program. So, um, keeping that animal around. Uh, so that, that brings up another topic that you're mentioning that, you know, what you use to select that holdback and that's value. mm -hmm. Like that's the top dollar. That was the best of the best that you could have produced in that clutch. And it's a no brainer to hold that back. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty confident in calling it uh, snow. I had uh, visual phantom tigers and a visual anery phantom or a handful of anery uh, phantom tigers that, you know, just day and night, one looks orange, one looks gray and silver. So right. I'm pretty confident in that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm over the moon with how that clutch went. And that's one of those clutches that I'm, I'm saying, like, it's hard not to hold everything back. It's hard not to hold all of those Anery Phantom Tigers back. Right. They uh, especially, especially the male. Um, that, that very well may be a hold back. Um, I mean, if no I'm, one bites it soon. Well, that and I mean, it's just the better version of what I use to you uh, used in this pairing anyway. Right. Uh, my ultimate goal is some great cows. But mm-hmm. my whole thing with all my back issues is I need that cow to be under 10 feet. Right. That's true. Yeah, and, it's got to be as high percentage as possible. Yeah. So this is definitely 
long game for me. I don't care how expensive cows are at that point. If the market's totally low on them and you can get a cow for $500, that, that I don't ever expect that. But, you know, that's my long-term goal is I, I want to produce that for myself. I want to be able to hatch that, have that excitement of seeing that come out of the egg and, you know, know that it's going to stay within my parameters. So right. that's my view on that and kind of my view on what I'm holding back this year. So let me ask you this, when it comes to health and genetics, right? So we're talking about now let's kind of move on in terms of like, how does health and the health of the animals impact your, um, your decision to hold animals back? Well, I guess that's a, that's a great transition just because we're already talking about my clutch. Um, this is the first year I've had any health issues and I only have one with any major health issues that, uh, I'm going to be forced to hold this animal back. Um, I think this is also, um, in the eyes of a breeder, kind of an ethical, uh, thing too, but I had an animal born, it's an Annery phantom tiger, I believe female. Um, and she has an enlarged heart. Uh, very visibly in the first third of her body. If you look at her belly, you can, you can see the heart. Um, you know, as long as that animal eats and thrives in my care, that animal will stay here. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I feel like, I don't know, I don't know why, but I feel like a lot of So that's of people, like a forced holdback, right? You know? Right. And, and I don't, I, it, so yeah, it is kind of like a forced holdback. And, um, I, I don't know why my brain tells me that breeders would be more likely to sell off animals that aren't as healthy as the ones that they want to keep. Because I, I, when I think of a breeder, they're, they're wanting to keep the best of the best back, which why would that exclude health? But, um, I, I did, I would do the same thing in your shoes as well. If, if an animal presents um, with a health defect that we are unsure of what the quality of life of that animal is going to be, I'm not making that animal for sale. Um, well, and a lot of a lot of breeders would just opt to cull that animal. Right. Um, just in my case, I haven't had to personally cull an animal yet, and I'm you know, I'll be honest, I'm not totally ready for it yet. Yeah. Um, and I would rather see if I could just provide the best life I can for this animal since it has a pretty normal disposition otherwise right. than, you know, getting rid of it. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, I was surprised to hear you say that, but it's nice to hear you say that. And I feel like hopefully a lot of other people, like I've talked to, um, um, Eric Lee's the same way. He says any animal that doesn't meet like his health standard doesn't get put for sale and he keeps some until the snake is thriving and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I hope that a lot more people are considering that as well. So again, another thing to consider with holdbacks ethics in regards to health genetics. Um, do you sell them because you can sell them cheaper and make money or do you hold them back and try to get the animal thriving to where it needs to be? Um, you know, so that you can monitor the, the health of that animal. So 
yeah, I mean that that I feel like that topic in and of itself could be an entire episode because me and you have been talking a lot on this podcast about the ethics of keeping and breeding retics, and I think that that's a big portion of it, like the decision to cull, not to cull, hold back, do you sell it, right? There's, but anyways, yeah, um, I feel like we've been pretty clear on the genetics and how they play a role, but how, how do you think genetic issues play a part? I mean, when talking about morphs, I think there's the obvious, you know, um, fatal combos that you should avoid, but any other considerations there? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when it comes to how genetics play a role in choosing animals to kind of you know, keep back for future breedings. Um, you know, I'll even just use like, uh, since we were talking about morphs and stuff like that, and you mentioned like the super forms of them being deadly, let me, you know, go to the locality side of things. Um, so like I have a pair of F1 Halma Harris, right. And there's only 1.1 wild caught in the country. So obviously we're bottlenecked right off the bat. I will use that pair to make F2s. And, I will continue to use that pair to make F2s because F2s aren't going to display. I don't think two generations from wild caught are going to really negatively impact it. No one's going to see issues with them, but um, I don't plan to hold any of those animals back because I'm not going to hold them back for a Halmahera to then, you know, take to another family member of the Halmahera and continue to breed and or inbreed you know, just to, to try to change up the look of the Halmahera, right? So, yeah. like, that's a consideration in which, like, I'm not going to keep any back. And and I feel like, you know, this episode is about choosing holdbacks, but it's, I feel like when not to choose holdbacks is also something that we shouldn't overlook either. Um, yeah, so that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, so there's there's that aspect of it. But yeah, when it comes to genetics and stuff like that, like, um, for example, I'm flirting with the idea, right? I have this, uh, you know, I have this head ocelot clutch that has tigers and I'm holding a 1.1 pair of tigers back. Um, you know, if I decide to bring them back together to see what a super tiger ocelot looks like, or to try to hit the odds of the Pasha endocarmel, right? I think my holdbacks of that clutch, if they hit endocarmel, would be just the Indocarmel Tiger Ocelot. I, I wouldn't I don't think I would keep back any of the super tigers just because I don't like um super tigers are known to be pushers. They push relentlessly. Um mm-hmm. and so I just don't want to deal with that headache. So even though like that would be the you know the the best outcome of that clutch, a super tiger ocelot, you know, maybe an Indocarmel, um probably still won't even keep that back. Well, I'm, I'm starting to slow down on tiger in my projects completely just because, you know, it's just one of those genes that I, I feel like is a little oversaturated, even in the super dwarf market. I mean, you can, you can find a tiger anywhere. Yeah. I, I think that that's extremely accurate. Um, I love tiger. And so yeah, I do it's have, one of my, it's one of my favorite genes, hands down. That was the second yeah. morph that I got into. It's because it's so visually attractive, but right we also need to make sure that we're keeping up with demand and not just overproducing these genetics. Right. 
Or like if you're going to use tiger and you're going to produce tiger, like if I, you know, if I decide to breed my tiger and do that, you know, choosing different localities to, you know, make them stand out and look different. It's all about trying to, at least in my perspective, trying to produce, you know, the best of an individual trait instead of the gene stacking. And so, you know, I, w- I would play with that, right? Like, you know, I don't think anyone's ever produced um, Hera tigers in this country. No one's produced Philippine tigers in this country. Oh, yeah. Uh, if it's pushing the tiger gene forward, then yeah. Right. I like, think. The, but, but yeah, the Superdorf uh, community in the Superdorf, you know, tiger is, is pretty uh, widely available. So, you know, to, to produce, uh, you know, 50% Superdorf tigers at this point is like, why? Yeah, I mean, I've had an eighty-seven and a half percent Kalatoa tiger that for five years now. So, right. I mean, right there. They, yeah, they've been they've been out there. Um, let me ask you this: uh, we we touched a little bit about this, but what are some key physical characteristics um, that you assess in like your hatchlings uh, in terms of like physical and behavioral? you know, behaviors or or, or characteristics? I mean, first of all, I mean, with every single animal, I'm just going to be making sure that you have general motor motor responses working properly. So, you know, tongue flicking, uh, eating, pooping, peeing, that kind of thing. Uh, Just looking at how they move around, uh, making sure that they don't look like they have any neurological issues. Uh, Neurological issues most of the time, ends up in corkscrewing or uh, wobble, that kind of thing. So those are the main things that I'm looking for. And then the really obvious stuff is just going to be, you know, obvious birth defects, like the the enlarged heart, the, you know, the underdeveloped head or, you know, minor kinks. Tiny Uh, squishy eyes. I, I had a couple animals that had cosmetic kinks right at the tip of their tail this year. Nothing wrong with them, but just, you know, the last vertebrae, just tiny bit off. Right. So those kind of things, because you want to be, you know, looking, we're talking about holdbacks. So looking for the best animal and also, you know, making sure that you're representing your animals truthfully when you go and list them. Right. Don't quote me on this, but like another example is like, so Bob Clark just produced a clutch of and this is the part that I'm saying, don't quote me, but I'm, I'm like 95% sure it was a phantom pied. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, phantom pieds are all white. And, but one thing that I noticed about them, right? Like that, that when you're producing the first phantom pied in the country, right? Like if I'm a breeder and I did that, like Bob did, um, the way those phantom pieds came out, if you look at the images of them, they have very small eyes. Um, like very small eyes, like eyes that should not look like if you look at a hatchling retic, Superdorf or not, they're supposed to have like big buggy, like goofy, dumb looking eyes. It's like, funny you say that because I've seen a super phantom that has not small eyes, but a weird pupil. Yeah, that so I talked to uh um I talked to Rick O'Neill in depth about that discussion and he'd noticed that um you know, and maybe even a theory that their eyesight isn't nearly as good or they might possibly be uh, partially blind. Yeah. And uh, so like if I was, 
if I was the one who produced a, a phantom pied and it became like, it was an all white snake, that'd be cool. Like right off the bat, I'm like, Oh, that would be a holdback. But then once I look at the eyes and I see that they're tiny, like I'm not, that's not an animal I want to continue to keep for future generations to come. Um, but in terms of like the behavioral indicators and things that you were talking about, um, I, I think that I, I'm looking for food response, right? So like if I have an animal slamming food right off the bat, I'm like, boom, definitely potential holdback, right? Because yeah. yeah, I want to I mean... continue to produce snakes that are going to have that strong instinctive behavior out of the egg to eat um well and i when i breed with my calmest female i'm also looking for an animal that has a healthy food response and is exhibiting you know her you know just demeanor her confidence right just the level of interactability i mean i'm able to with the snow that i got i feel like she's a perfect representation of mom i mean right feeds great and then when i go to interact with her no you know no hesitation from the animal very confident comes out very explorative like just exactly what i would hope for yeah i'm gonna sound like a broken record here um because i keep mentioning mentioning this uh head ocelot clutch the mainland clutch that i produce but mm-hmm. um when I've produced F1 Kalatoas, F2 Kaiwadis, um, haven't had a single issue with snakes denying meals. But now that I have produced, uh, you know, a, a a mainland tiger to a mainland ocelot, both that have been line bred, inbred, whatever you want to call it, uh, and I'm feeding these animals, uh, I still have, they've been, you know, they, they hatched two and a half months ago, and I still have about eight that haven't eaten. And, um, those, those like, and I'm tr- still trying to select which tigers I'm holding back. And, uh, I can tell you right now that the eight that haven't eaten, even if they look better than the ones that have eaten, I'm not considering them. Um, and that's just because when you get into mainlands and there's so much of the, the crossbreeding, line breeding, inbreeding, uh, y- you really gotta just try to get rid of like don't don't continue to you know quote unquote failure to thrive animals you know don't even though they might look a little bit better than the one that's eating really well there I, I don't see the point of keeping it back to continue further breeding projects because uh a sign of not wanting to eat off the bat is uh you know i think that that's a direct result of just the the inbreeding and line breeding that has happened over time because we can't import it's very possible. Yeah. Uh, so, again, all guess and speculation here, but that, that's <laughs> kind of one thing that I'm I'm saying in regards to my clutches. Any of the ones that haven't eaten yet, yeah. they're not on my radar. Yeah, no. I mean, you, you want an animal that's going to thrive right from the beginning and the strongest genetics. I think that's true with any breeding with any animal. Um, so jumping on to, you know, just space and long-term planning, we kind of already talked about it at the top of the episode, but... You know, it's not totally feasible to keep back every animal because planning out for the space and resources needed to house a retic, especially over the first four years, like their needs continuously grow, their space continually grows. And 
their poop you know, we need continuously to make grows <laughs> that, but we need to make <laughs> sure that we have a solid plan for keeping these animals around long-term. Right. We always preach, you know, we want to see these animals 15, 20 years down the road. And so whatever we need to keep, we need to make sure that we can, you know, live up to that standard. So, right. uh, you know, what kind of responsible breeding practices and avoiding of overproduction are you kind of looking at when looking at your long-term planning? Yeah. So, um, I'm being very selective on the projects that I'm doing that are long-term in regards to like recesses and stuff like that. And I, I'm not being overzealous. Like I originally thought like back in the day, you know, and back in the day, two years ago, um, I wanted to be kind of like a, a full-time breeder. And there's been a lot of things that I've observed and a lot of experiences that I've had that kind of led me to back off on that. Um, yeah, I would agree with you a hundred percent there. I think that especially for anyone getting into this fresh and, you know, probably the same, same ways that we did, you know, finding people online that are very successful in their, uh, reptile breeding endeavors. I, I mean, it looks super attainable, but you have to work for a very long time to uh, attain a full-time position in the reptile industry. I mean, right. we've, we've talked about it with some of the, your favorite retic breeders, right? We're all sustaining this a different way. A lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've kind of gone away from that. And so back when I was thinking about that, you know, I was thinking about, you know, big facility, which I could keep the holdbacks and I would get employees and that way I could pursue these projects. And, um, but I'm not there anymore. And so like, there's an ethical dilemma that even I'm facing, right? Because I bought animals that I intentionally, like I've been housing two to three years that I intentionally, you know, I had plans for them. And then I'm like, wait, like I'm working ocelots into different localities. I'm working ghost into Superdorf. All of these stuff that are like, that, that require holdbacks. And now I'm looking at, you know, my marble. I'm like, do I really need to breed marbles when there's a bunch of people doing it? And I do consignment for people that are probably going to send me a marble clutch that I'll sell for them anyways. So I, you know, I sold my, my marble. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things that I find myself now in ethical dilemmas that I've given a snake a home and I've raised it. And now I'm like, well, I have, so many pairings that I'm going to need to keep animals that I'm selling animals that now I'm realizing like, this isn't my focus. And so, so since, since we've talked so much about our focus shifting, then we're, we're kind of, instead of being selfish and holding these animals back so we can be the first one to do it, we're kind of spreading the love around and right. opening up that market and opening up the project for everyone else. So how do you then plan ahead for the high demand or the valuable recessive projects that you're working on within your collection? So like, for example, like I'm going to hold back, you know, what I think is ethical in order to keep back in terms of numbers, right? So one thing that I do want to let you guys know that I think is super important for everybody to know, if you think you're like, okay, this is a project that I want to continue to go through. It's a new groundbreaking project in Superdors or whatever the case may be. If you're like, okay, I'm going to hold back 1.1. I'm going to stop you for a second. If anything happens to that 1.0 or 0.1, and that's all you held back, you're SOL. So just keep that in mind. 
that if you're working on a very important project that you want to foresee, you need to have a backup to your, your, your starters, because if you don't, then you set yourself back and you're at square one almost. Um, but number two, when I sell these animals that I'm trying to maintain a market for, for like a, you know, an Ocelot Superdorf or, or a Renick Ghost Superdorf or things that I'm working on, I'm not selling pairs to people. Um, I'm making females cheaper because they're going to last longer or, or not last longer. They're going to take longer to become breeder ready. Um, and I'm going to drive the price up on males because that, that males are, are very as long easy. as it's a groundbreaking project, if it's something right. that's a dime a dozen, then I think it still works the opposite way. But yeah, I do agree with you there. Yeah. So, but I won't sell, I won't sell pairs to people on, on projects that I'm trying to, you know, produce, uh, an animal that is not commonly or very rarely, or has never been produced. I'm not going to sell pairs to people. Um, and then, yeah, just my, my terms of that is just like, you know, just make sure you have a backup on hand. I think that that's important, but when it comes to size of these animals, even the smallest ones, uh, realize what you're getting into. You know, I've had close friends that have bought in like 15 hatchlings to yearlings in like a year and a half. And now that they're growing up, they're, they're kind of, they're selling a lot of them because they didn't realize that those 15 snakes, like it's easy to keep 15 babies, right? Yeah. 15 babies, 20 babies is pretty easy, but you know, even once they get to the two year mark, it's a totally different cleaning experience, handling experience. So yeah, I mean, it, you, you grow quick with these animals, even though uh, with the females, especially they, they tend to grow slow, but uh, you're still, you know, running into this stuff pretty quick. And I mean, one two thing, years isn't that long. No, it's not. It, it, it goes by by, you know, in a blink of an eye, especially if you're working on other projects and things like that. But I also want to just make a comment in terms of like, if you are going to hold back a large number of animals from a clutch, you have to plan ahead. Have have the extra space that you need, have the size caging that you're going to need, or or if you decide to use a rack system, you know, make sure you have large enough rack systems and not just like, okay, well, I have the hatchling racks. They'll be good in there for six to eight months, right? Like make sure you're, you're planning ahead and you have the space for it because, um, man, I've had multiple mentors tell me when you hold back large number of animals from clutches, like food costs, racks, enclosures, whatever it is that you are doing to keep these animals, um, it piles on quickly. And if you already have a living animal in your possession, you need to have that stuff beforehand so that the animal doesn't end up being the one that that's not giving the proper life. Yeah, don't. It, it, I mean, that's. I mean, core values one hundred and one of the retic <laughs> lounge is don't keep beyond your means. Right. So, Lucas, just wrapping up here, I want to just jump into, you know, personal experiences first and foremost. I want to invite anyone. Uh, listening who's bred any sort of reptile, whether it be retics, chameleons, tree monitors, like Lucas was mentioning, please, you know, comment below. Specifically um, the blue ones. <laughs> yes, yeah, specifically the blue ones, Joey Muggleston, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, 
But yeah, if you have any insight into what makes a holdback a holdback for you, please drop that in the comments below. We'd love to get your guys' insight. Um, but I just want to share maybe one uh, lesson learned about past experiences and how it's influenced my decision making. Uh, just with my first clutch, I did a big gene stacking project with uh, Golden Child, Annery, Sunfire, Tiger, Platinum. Um, and it's a hundred percent head snow. Now with all those genes and everything going on, I, I wasn't thinking clearly. And I chose to hold back 1.1, which again, probably wasn't enough. And if I wanted to use those animals together in a project, I'd be irresponsible because I'd be producing a fatal combo with super golden child. Yeah. So just really be thinking about the future of your projects. Luckily, I still have a pathway uh, with those holdbacks and some future projects that I'm very, very excited about that hopefully will pan through this season. Uh, but, you know, just be aware of, you know, the potentials of what you're holding back if you tend to try to breed anything back to each other. And, you know, just, you know, try to keep it as ethical as possible try to keep the offspring that you seek to produce as right. healthy as strong as possible as desirable as possible all of that yeah i mean my biggest regret was when i bred that wild caught pairing and introduced a new line of kalatoa um i only kept back 1.1 and uh i hate myself for it uh because for my standards i've realized just how few and far between, you know, Kalatoas may be. And um, the fact that I had something fresh and I only have 1.1 available. Um, I'm not going to lie. Every single time I look at those animals, when I go into my garage, I, I think it, I think about it every single time that I only kept back a pair. Um, so if you guys are working with a rare locality, or, or locality that, you know, diversification isn't quite as much as we would like with importation ban. Um, hold back more off the bat. That, like, that's what I'm going to do move, moving forward. Because worst case scenario, if you end up saying like, okay, I can, you know, if I kept back 3.3 and, and, you know, a year and a half down the road, two years down the road, I decide to sell. Uh, you know, 1.1 or 2.1, those animals now have age. The males are breeder ready in two years. Um, you know, you can get more money for them. Uh, and so I, I just wish I would have probably held back another pair. Um, that's been the only uh, experience that I, I, I learned from that experience. And right now, because of the, you know, the Annery Kaiwati clutch and producing, you know, what I think is Annery that I plan to prove out, um, I got three, four animals that I'm keeping from that Kaiwati clutch because they all look in. So I, I learned my lesson. Like I'm, I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot twice. So, all right, Nathan, I think we've kind of hit this yeah, over the head. We, we have, I think, you know, just wrapping up, we need to, you know, just bash that hammer over the head a little bit more. Um, keep it ethical make sure everything's desirable that you're trying to produce. If you're purchasing an animal, 
make sure it's not an impulse buy. Make sure you have a future plan for this animal, whether it be a pet. If it's a breeder, then you damn sure better have a, a good breeding plan and just make sure that you're you're advancing our hobby, uh, making yeah. making animals and stuff that's going to be loved down the line. So, um, Lucas, even though it's not a year, uh, it's a year's worth of work. Right. Uh, we've done 52 full episodes. I I couldn't be prouder of us if uh, I said I never I saw we, this coming. If I said, yeah, I was going to say, if I said I thought we'd get to this point and be sitting here today, I'd be totally lying. Same. Uh, it, it's a it's a lot of work to produce this thing and and put on a show for you guys every week, but we a, we absolutely love it. And as a matter of fact, like shout out to our Patreon. Um, for those of you that have been supporting us, and I was going through the Patreon today and saw some of you that that have been following since in oops hit the mic that have been Patreon since day one, um, you guys continue to provide us the support that we have actually like continued to do this. Um, if you guys want to join the community, link is down there below. But yeah, I I, I can't yeah I, I couldn't agree more um i did not think that we were going to make it weekly i was like surely we're not going to keep this up for i was for like year, lucas but... we have to bank episodes or else i know i'm going to get sick of you and right, exactly to, to say we haven't gotten sick of each other at certain points would be a total lie but lucas yeah, and exactly. i have been rock solid even through that shit so i just want to thank everyone for stopping by this week if you've made it this far you're the real one we'll see you next week see you, everyone